This morning what we're going to do is continue talking about what Jesus thinks about the church. That would be a good way to summarize what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. What does Jesus think of the church? And what we've been seeing is Jesus thinks very highly of the church. And uh, in one sense, that's all I need to know because I'm a Christian and I'm a follower of Christ and I want to know what Jesus thinks above all others. And if Jesus thinks highly of the church, then I want to think highly of the church and I'm sort of doing my best to point these things out to you in Scripture uh, so that you might have a refreshed, renewed, elevated biblical perspective of the church so that you might prioritize the things that are priorities to Jesus. And uh, so far we've looked at ten declarations, ten declarations from Scripture, uh, hearing from Jesus, from His apostles uh, that help us to see the significance, the weightiness, the centrality of this thing we call the church. I won't review them now, but we've seen things like the church is what Jesus loves. Uh, I suppose that should be enough right there. Uh, the church is for promoting and protecting the gospel, and we've seen many others that you could review if you wanted to do that. This morning we're going to look at three more, three more declarations. We're going to uh, conclude the series this morning, three more declarations about the church. And I realize that in doing this, I'm, I'm not only wanting you to think like Christ and have the same affections that Christ has, I realize in doing this, I'm being somewhat countercultural um, and encouraging you to be somewhat countercultural. Uh, we tend to have a, a pretty low view of church. Uh, we like Jesus, we just don't like the church kind of thing. And as I've said before, uh, you can't love Jesus and, Jesus and hate his wife. Um, the church is the bride of Christ. He gave himself up for his church. And uh, even though a lot of bad things are done in the name of church, um, we want to have a biblical perspective and, and have our affections be drawn to the same things uh, that Christ are drawn toward. And, and so, again, especially against an American kind of rugged individualism, uh, just me and that's all I need kind of perspective, I realize I'm... I'm, I'm we're swimming upstream a little bit, but that's okay, and I'm trying to help you with that and uh, bring things into perspective. So we'll look at these final three this morning, and then we are going to end the service today in, in, in a unique way for us. And at the end of the service, we're going to acknowledge and affirm or welcome, if you will, um, some new members. Uh, and when I say some, uh, I mean some uh, and more than just a few. So uh, that's how we'll end the service today. And I think it'll be a fitting way to do that because point three today, which would be the 13th, you can tell I'm not superstitious, um, the 13th of these declarations will be the churches for belonging. And so that's kind of where we're headed this morning. Ready to go? I hope you're ready to go. I, I feel like I'm ready to go. Greg's ready to go. All right, good. Number 11 on the list, uh, could be number one for today, but number 11 on the list, another declaration that's a biblical reality would be the church is for spiritual gifts. The church is for spiritual gifts. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As you're turning to Ephesians 4 and we're thinking about how the church is for spiritual gifts, uh, I can point out to you what you already know. A gift is something that you receive. It's not something you earn. And when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, 
As we read about in the book of Acts, as he ascended into heaven, the Bible says he gave gifts. He gave gifts to individual Christians. And as he did that, he gave gifts to the church. And so it's not either or, it's both and. And Ephesians 4 is really an extraordinary passage that that shows us this, that tells us about this. We're going to learn that these gifts that Jesus gave are for spiritual growth for maturity so that there wouldn't be immaturity there would be maturity not just for individuals but also for the church and so thus we're saying therefore we're saying the church is for spiritual gifts so if you want to follow along with me i'll read aloud beginning in verse 7 in ephesians 4 where it says but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of christ's gift therefore it says When he, this is Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, so many captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Not to stop for very long, but just for clarity's sake, if you haven't thought about it before, uh, the one who ascended is the one who descended, the one who came from heaven. He descended to the earth is the idea in this passage. And so as he came, he also left. But as he left, he didn't leave us with nothing. He left us with gifts. Verse 11 then says, and he gave and he graced, if you will, he gifted the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry or service, for the building up, notice the maturity idea now, for the building up of the body of Christ, otherwise known as, in other texts, the church. For the building up of the church, for the maturity of the church, he gave these things. Then verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood. He's using a, 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 an adult figure, a male figure, as a picture of maturity. So you a, an infant, a baby, uh, then you have uh, a child and it grows up, uh, if it's a male, to, to be a man. And that's the image. The church should grow up. It should mature. It shouldn't stay infantile. Then it goes on to say in verse 13, to the measure of the stature of the fullness, again, maturity is the idea, fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro or here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth, the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we'll pause there. It's a great picture, a great vivid image of of growing up and you're going to become a mature person. And then he uses a little bit different image talking about the different parts that are held together uh, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 and and we're all different body parts of the body of Christ and Christ is the head. And But for sure I want you to see right here and now the gifts are given for maturity and the gifts are given to individuals, yes, But it's not an either or like so many things. The gifts are given to individuals who are then given to the church. 
so that individuals can be maturing, right? But also so that the church might be maturing. So you look at it from both sides of things and, and all of a sudden you say, yeah, this makes sense. We're going to be immature at first, so how can we be mature? Well, we can be mature by, by having these gifts complement one another and work together so that the body might function correctly because when parts aren't functioning correctly, we have problems. It's very simple, very straightforward, but I'm trying to draw your attention this morning and remind you that it is, that it is a churchly context. Um, I don't have every spiritual gift, and so I need your spiritual gifts. Because I want to be mature as an individual, so I need other Christians. Uh, I don't have every spiritual gift, so I can't lead my family all alone. There's another angle of things. Sometimes people think they can, you know, they can lead their family all by themselves. Well, that's not the image of the, from the Bible. We should try to lead our families, but actually we need others in the church, according to context, to, to help, to help us with this maturity thing. But then it's, that's not all. For the church to be mature, for the church to be mature, then we have to do our part as well, functioning together in the body of Christ. And so think about it in those terms also. For the church to do what it's supposed to do, we've seen in recent days that the church is to be the pillar and support of, of the gospel truth, promoting, protecting, heralding, right? All these kinds of things. Well, for us to do that and have that kind of effective ministry, well, we, we, we need to have our, our giftedness working together so that we can be a mature church to be busy doing what we're supposed to be doing instead of caught up in unhealthiness or immaturity, spiritually speaking. And so it's a fascinating passage. It's a helpful passage, and it helps us as individuals, and hopefully it helps us as a church. But please notice, it's for giftedness, and therefore it's for maturity the church is. Now, this isn't the only passage. Uh, in fact, in no text um, do we have all the gifts mentioned. Um, we have different gifts in different passages, uh, like sample lists, if you will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is another big one. I'm going to reference it. You can go there now if you'd like, or you can just listen. But 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is another one. I'm just going to skim it. But I really want to help you hopefully kind of see the obvious that's not become so obvious, and that's that it's a local church kind of context. There's a universal sense in which Jesus has given His church, the body of Christ, worldwide gifts. But we have to remember, and we, we forget this sometimes, that the universal church manifests itself, it shows itself, it represents itself, biblically speaking, in local congregations. And, and this 1 Corinthians is a classic example where he talks about the Corinthian church as the body of Christ as a church. He doesn't talk to them as if they're part of it. He actually uses completion terminology that they, they should be a, a complete, mature church, even though they're a local church. So again, I hate doing this so often. Um, maybe I don't hate it, um, but it, I, I keep repeating myself. I know it's not an either or, it's a both and, but we tend to universalize everything so that we can be Joe Schmo independent Christians. We don't need anybody. And so I'm probably overreacting the other way just to point out to you uh, the universal is true, but we can't forget that the local is definitely emphasized. And we actually do need each other, uh, and we need to engage each other, and we need each other's giftedness, not just for ourselves as individuals, but, but for the church to be mature as well.
I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this. So I'm just having a great time. I don't know what I would do if I weren't a preacher. I, I don't know how you can sit still. It would just drive me absolutely crazy to just... I love having my own little charismatic experiences up here every Sunday. It's just like awesome. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, um, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, so we know he's talking about that, and I hate to do it, but I'm just going to jump around. Verse 7 says, to each is given, so individual is given, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you see the double emphasis. It's, to each one is given, but... but Who's my giftedness for? Well, I certainly benefit, I hope. But, but it's actually for others. And, and it's actually for the benefit of the church. And he goes on to say, and I'm not going to read it in 12, verses 12 and following, he gives this great body image um, explaining how every single part is important and you have to have all the parts and they work together and there's growth through this unity, growth through this solidarity together and that's what leads to maturity and he, he really does a, a great job pulling it all together and how we all need each other all needed and we're all in need is the best way i could summarize it so we're all needed but we're all in need and so we're, we're, we're together in this christian journey for lack of a better way of putting it uh, it's not a, it's not an individual thing it's a together kind of thing isn't it fascinating that the love chapter, you know, the love chapter is right smack dab in the middle of the spiritual gifts catastrophe in Corinth. So they, they, they have all these different gifts and they need the gifts and they need the gifts for individuals to grow and they need the gifts for, for their church to grow. But there, there's there's potential for conflict because they're together because they're working together because at least they have this much right we like to kind of kick the corinthians and beat up on them but maybe they're sometimes ahead of us because at least they know they need to be together at least they understand local church priority to the extent where they're fighting (laughs) they could just say forget it i don't need any other christians i'm just going to do my own thing but they at least got the memo that they should be part of a local church functioning together and they're fighting like cats and dogs the love chapter comes right in the middle of the spiritual gifts. You, you need to love each other. In, in order for you to mature and to work together and to benefit from one another so that the church at Corinth is mature doing its ministry, you're going to have to love each other. Um, the context isn't a wedding context, um, though we need to hear about love when it comes to wedding ceremonies too. The context is local church ministry. It's a gift ministry, and we've got to get to get, uh, get along if we're going to get through this. I think it's fascinating. You guys have probably thought of that a long time ago, and I'm late to the party. But it struck me this last week. I thought, this is interesting why, why it's right here. Um. Now, before moving on, I'll at least remind you that, um, so you don't just take my word for it, that in chapter 1, verse 2, it does say, to the church of God that is in Corinth. He doesn't say to the church of God that is in the world. That would be true, but he's saying to the church of God that is in Corinth. He's talking to the church in Corinth. He's talking to a local church, not part of the church, even though that would be true too. Because the local church is part of the universal, but he's, he's 
putting a lot of stock in to what happens there in a local assembly to the church of God that is at Corinth. In chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's talking to the Corinthians and he says, you are the body of Christ. Now he could have said, you're part of the body of Christ. And that would be true because there's a universal church. But he says, you are the body of Christ. He's not saying there aren't other Christians. But he's definitely putting a weightiness in this local assembly that's to have a sense of completion. That's to have a sense of, of we need every one of our, our members here to be mature. We're committed to one another. We've got to make this work. It's fascinating. And yes, I'm trying to elevate your, your view of local church if need be. Even the gathered aspect. Chapter 14, verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather, and he talks about giftedness in the church. Not that giftedness, giftedness doesn't operate outside, but the focus in the book is it's operating inside. It's fascinating. Probably not quite how we're used to thinking. Let's, let's leave this now and, and, and at least say, okay, what's the takeaway? Gifts are required for maturity, for you and for us, so we can do our ministry. And so, for you to mature, you need to be part of a local church. For Christians to mature, they need to be, it's assumed that they're part of a local church where giftedness is happening and working together is happening. And, and then if we turn our focus outward for Omaha Bible Church to be effective in its ministry of outreach and inreach, we need each other. Um, we need involvement. Um, so the takeaway is, I want to be part. I want to do my part. I want to be a part. I want to do my part. I'm needy and others are in need and not just others, but the church at large is, meaning this local church. It's a pretty straightforward takeaway, but, but it really is a call for action. In so many ways, the gospel compels me to do this. Okay, I'm saved because of what Jesus has done for me. But... As someone who becomes a Christian, I'm placed into the body of Christ, universally. But the universal church manifests itself in local churches. And, and, and I want to grow, and, and I want to help others to grow. And helping others to grow comes out of love for others, and that comes because God loved me first in the gospel. And so now, out of gratitude, I want to do that, and I want to help others too. But not only that, I'm a part of something now that is to promote the gospel and to defend the gospel, and I certainly want to do that because the gospel came to me, and I'm thankful that others before me promoted it and defended it. And now we're called as part of this great commission to continue on until Christ returns. And so, even for the sake of the whole, for the church, for the body, the gospel compels me. I love this. 
And again, we all have different testimonies, and, and I don't want it to just be about me, but I, praise be to God, you know, I've gone from being a church despiser, church hater Christian, which is a contradiction in terms, full circle to going, wow, this is really important. And as I've said multiple times, uh, some sociologists have observed uh, that in American culture in more recent days, uh, people are into Jesus-anity, but they don't like Christianity. See, we like Jesus-anity because it's me and Jesus, and I don't need anybody else, and I don't need any structure, and I don't need any dogma. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. And there's something about that I think is good. It's, it's good pushback on a certain level. You know, a stop clock is right twice a day. Because sometimes the, 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 the traditions, right, and all the stuff and rules and regulations, and, you know, as, as someone said, the reason they have stained glass windows is to keep the light out. Well, I like stained glass windows that are pretty and we can appreciate them, but sometimes all the stuff gets in the way of the light. And I, I, just need a, I just need Jesus. But that's going too far when we, we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we, we forget that Jesus came and he gave himself up for her. And he promised to build his church. And his apostles are all about establishing, strengthening local churches so that the universal church would be strong. So we have to remember that. Our giftedness is important in the life of the church. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to number 12. Another declaration uh, that helps us to see the significance of the church. The church is for pastoral care and oversight. The church is for pastoral care and oversight. Now, we all have different impressions of what pastors are and what they do. Depending on how you were raised or how you're being raised, you might have a really high view of pastors. Or you might be more like me, and I tend to have a really low view of pastors. Um, not because I struggle with self-esteem. Um, I just don't have a very high view of pastors because of all the things that are done in, in the name of pastoring. Um, too many times it seems like wolves in sheep's clothing. They're either hucksters or perverts or power mongers or weaklings or weirdos. I'm like, pastors? I'm automatically suspicious. And again, hopefully you haven't been plagued with what I've been plagued with, but um, I go. And yet here's the question. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus think? He actually thinks both ways. In Matthew chapter 7, he warns of wolves in sheep's clothing or perhaps better yet, shepherd's clothing. Wolves dressed in wool like a shepherd would wear. A wolf dressed like a pastor. So he warns of them. So I think we have every reason to be suspicious. And yet Jesus himself is the good shepherd. And he himself, when he gave gifts to his church, among the gifted ones, among the giftedness, we read in Ephesians chapter 4 just this morning, right? He did give pastors. 
So not all pastors should be pastors. Um, there's a category for good ones and bad ones, and we're called to be discerning. But there is a place for good ones. And I just want to remind you that the church is for a place for pastoral care, where, where good pastoral care should happen. Shepherding should happen. Turn with me, if you would, to, uh, to pastor. Turn with me, if you would, to pastor chapter 5. Uh, <sighs> there is a book that's uh, not in the Bible. It's Apocrypha, or maybe it's not even Apocrypha, called The uh, Shepherd, the Pastor of Hermes. Is, it, is, it, is that apocryphal or pseudopigrapha? I like to say that word. Pseudopigraphal. That's the word for the day, okay? Not really. Um, see, if it's in the Bible, it's canonical. If it's not in the Bible, it's apocryphal. They're traditional writings. Um, and then the ones that are, are really low on the list, those are pseudopigraphal. It's just a cool word. I, I have to use it at least a few times in my whole preaching ministry because I paid a lot of money to go to seminary. <laughs> First Peter, okay? First Peter chapter 5, not First Pastor chapter 5. is going to help us to see the need for pastoral care and the fact that pastoral care happens as, as something that's part of the church. In First Peter chapter 5 verse 1, if you can't find First Peter, it's toward the end of your Bible. It's one of the smaller books. Revelation, start backing up to Jude and Third John, Second John, First John. You're getting close to Peter's writings. First Peter five. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you. Okay, in chapter one, verse one, there's five different locations. So he's addressing these who are in these five different locations. So I exhort the elders among you, these different churches, the elders among these different churches, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. It's another way of saying, as a fellow Christian, and as a fellow church leader. Then he says in verse 2, shepherd, that's our word for pastor. Sometimes it's translated pastor, sometimes shepherd, same idea, same reality. Shepherd the flock of God, and then he says, that is among you, exercising oversight. Super straightforward. So he's talking to the leaders and he says, you need to shepherd, you need to pastor and pastor those. Where? Everyone who follows your podcast. No, um, that, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be possible. Um, pod, podcasts are great. But it actually goes to my point. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And he's addressing these who are in these individual regions, in these areas where they're eldering, where they're shepherding, where they have churches and you need to, you need to shepherd those around you. They're not worldwide shepherds. Apostles were more like that. Um, as the early church started and was established, they, they were more itinerant and they went around to going to different places, establishing different churches. But the instruction here is you shepherd those who are, who are there among you. What is shepherding? Well, shepherding is, is caring. Shepherding is, is feeding, right? What does a shepherd do? It's pretty straightforward. They feed, they protect, Right? They correct, but there's caring, and, 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 and oversight is the next word. And he does say that, exercising oversight. That's a, that's a leadership statement. 
You need to oversee them. You need to watch out for them. You need to lead them. You need to guide them. Before moving on, one takeaway, so I don't forget, would be we don't pastor ourselves. Addressing those elders, and he says, you need to shepherd the people who are there, those who are around you. He doesn't say, you need to teach them how to be self-shepherds. Or I'll put it in my own terms. I can't pastor myself. I, I want to do a lot of things on my own. I want to get better at doing things on my own. I want to be mature. I want to grow. But, but it doesn't work biblically to be a self-pastoring. And I'm saying that because a lot of people think in Jesus' sanity that they can self-pastor, that they don't need anyone to oversee them or to lead them. And uh, obviously, you know, it's kind of silly for me to emphasize these things to you because you're here. <laughs> you're at least open to the idea. <laughs> but to further affirm that, it's an impossibility. I need pastoring and I am a pastor. You need pastoring and you're a pastor, maybe, but or even if you're not a pastor, you need pastor. We all need to be led. And Jesus leads, yes, but he has those who are, we would call under-shepherds, according to First Peter. We have a whole group of people, a whole segment of people who think they, they just self-pastor. And it just doesn't work in the Bible, and we're trying to see what the Bible says about these things from Jesus and his apostles. Do notice uh, even that statement, if you would, in verse 2, where he says, exercising oversight. It's probably stronger than we think. And the reason I think it's stronger than we think is because of what he goes on to say. Verse 3 says, as a corrective to these pastors so they don't get carried away, not domineering. Not domineering over those in your charge. As some translations might say, do say, not lording it over. Okay, Not heavy-handed, iron-fisted but being examples to the flock. You're not just barking out orders, telling everybody else what to do. You're actually doing it yourself. But the idea helps us to appreciate some of the strength of that earlier statement, exercising oversight. Whatever that is, it's strong enough for Peter to give a corrective to say, not in a domineering way. So we, we should at least realize that it's probably stronger than we realize. And here's where I walk on eggshells because I'm overreacting to coming across like some kind of, you know, crazy, power-hungry, I don't know, give me some synonyms. Just, you know, you know what I'm saying. This is where you invite another pastor to come in and preach about pastoring, you know. But then I wouldn't be that great of a pastor. But the I what I'm getting at is, it, it's a pretty strong statement. Pastors are supposed to, to lead, to oversee. Um, if we look at other pa passages, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Rule? Seriously? Well, whatever that is, it doesn't mean in this domineering, lording it over, rah, you know. But he does use the word rule. See, I don't like to use that because I don't want to come across as some kind of high-handed person. So we say, I don't say we're an elder-ruled church. I say we're elder-governed because that's nice. And I'm nice. Isn't that nice? <laughs> 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 
But using some humor, rule is what it says. It's a strong leadership word. The same Greek word, I believe, is used in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, where it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you. Just translated a different way, not rule, but those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonishing. And Hebrews 13.17 even uses the O word. What word might I be thinking of? Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey your leaders. In, oh, the S word too? Submit to them. See, I don't like talking about that. But trying to be a good pastor today, I at least have to say it. With some humor so you understand where I'm coming from. But the Bible does say, Obey your leaders. Obey anything they say? No, the Bereans, they, they, they examine the Scriptures to see if these things are so. You need to do that. Obey anything I say about anything? Absolutely not. That's why I try not to say things about other things. You want my advice about something? Go ask somebody else. I'd probably give bad advice. You want to talk about what the Bible says about something and what, what, what you should believe or how you should act to honor Christ? Okay. And you know what? And you should obey what I say. Not because I have some weird spin or spin-off view, but if I can show you in the text of Scripture, you know what? I wonder how many adults in this room think of themselves as um, fit to obey anyone. I'm curling my toes when I think about obeying. Who am I going to obey? Americans don't obey. We do it our way. We're the ultimate consumers. We're the ultimate sovereigns who, if we don't like it here, we go there. Just remember, Christians are supposed to obey, not with blind eyes, but we are to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And insofar as His Word is proclaimed to us, we're called to obey. We need to remember that. But if you don't have a pastor or pastors, better yet, you don't have that part of your Christian life. And that's a problem. I need to be pastored. I'm saying that as a pastor because I'm also a Christian. Who are they to do this for? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1 has these overseer, elder, pastor people in local churches. In Ephesus. In Crete, respectively. They're not internet pastors they're obeying. They're not podcast pastors they're obeying. They're pastoring local congregations among them. 1 Peter chapter 5. I love listening to sermons as I mentioned last week. I love the internet as far as resources but I still need to be pastored by people who are among me. And so do you. So, does all, so do all Christians. Everyone needs pastoring, therefore everyone needs a local church where they can be pastored. Number 13, finally. 
made it through all that. Nobody even threw rotten fruit. You see why it's a touchy issue? You see why I'm trying to do this? I don't want to be ashamed or holding something back from you that you need to know. But I know I have clay feet. It's like everybody else. It is good also, as an aside, that, that we have um, in the Bible plurality of biblically qualified leaders. And it's not a one-person show. Appoint elders, plural. Well, if it's just one elder, we say der. <laughs> if it's just one, how can they be pastored? How can they be shepherded? God in His good wisdom does know that someone needs to be in charge, but if just someone is in charge and it's other than the, anyone other than the perfect Christ, there's going to be trouble. So let's move on now to number 13, and we'll end on this. The church is for belonging. The church is for belonging. It's not by accident that we're ending here, talking about belonging to the church. We know that it's for belonging because of what the New Testament describes, okay? By description. When you read through the book of Acts, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, and even local churches. Acts 8.1, Acts 8.3, Acts 9.31, Acts 11.22, Acts 11.26, Acts 12.1. As a sample, believers are referred to as the church. But then there are also members of local churches, for example, in Acts 15.41 and Acts 16.5 which is rather remarkable because that's when everything is just getting started. But then you go out from there and you have the pastoral letters and you have Timothy and Ephesus establishing elders and ruler or yeah, rulers, right? <laughs> Titus in Crete, Corinthian church, church Galatia, church, 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 church. And these people are connected to these churches. We know that by description. We also know it because of accountability. Before we go there, we also know about giftedness, but we already talked about that. People belong to these churches. First Corinthians would argue that because of the giftedness thing. But they all, we also know they belonged. How about this? Don't miss this. They belong because how else could they be accountable? In First Corinthians 5, if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. But in First Corinthians 5, it's one of the accountability passages. And this is one of the strongest arguments for formally belonging to a church. It seems kind of strange because it seems negative. I don't mean it to be a negative thing, but if there's accountability, it's accountability because there's actual belonging. Otherwise, it's faux accountability. You're not really accountable to a church if you don't belong to that church. Let me show you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we won't read the whole thing. Uh, it's about someone who's in unrepentant sin. Uh, it's a complimentary passage to Matthew chapter 18, which we talked about earlier in this series. And eventually, where there's not, no repentance, what ends up happening is in verse 12 of chapter 5, well, he, what ends up happening is you, you have no association with them at the end of verse 11. But verse 12 says, for what have I to do with judging, here's what I want you to see, outsiders. Paul says, you don't, you don't try to go discipline those who aren't part of the church, that doesn't make sense. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
You are to make evaluations about what's right and what's wrong with those in the church. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, sorry to give you whiplash in all these different passages, but the idea is if they're part of the church and they're living in unrepentant sin, they won't respond to acts of help and encouragement and they won't repent, then then you've got to purge. You've got to get rid of them and say, you're not welcome here. This is like Jesus in Matthew 18 saying, Gentile tax collector. But what I want you to see here is the obvious thing that's always not always so obvious. You can't put someone out who's never been what? Who's never been in. It, It can't be done. Maybe one of the reasons why churches don't do what Jesus says in Matthew 18 or Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is because the, the people don't belong. And how can you put someone out who isn't ever in? So at least notice inside. So people are inside, it says, and then people are outside. And this church is called to purge this unrepentant person at the end there in verse 13 who's on the inside. So the ones who are on the inside, you need to put them on the outside. Church is for belonging. If you don't belong to a local church, like the Corinthian church, which was a local church, if you're living in unrepentant sin, you can't be put out of the church because you were actually never formally attached to the church. And let me ask you this. What's the purpose of accountability? According to Matthew 18. It's to win your brother! Go through this process because because hopefully you'll win them, meaning you'll help them, you'll restore them. That's why this whole thing is happening. We're missing out. We're missing out if we're not attached because if we're not attached, we actually can't go through the process. Shepherding is another thing we also um, should emphasize when it comes to belonging. We've already seen that They're to be shepherded, those who are among them. Um, But in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the elders are to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock. So they're to pay careful attention. They're to care for the church. Those who have been entrusted to them, they're to pay careful attention to, spiritually speaking. Well, if you're not attached to a local church, if you don't belong to a local church, the elder pastor overseers can't pay careful attention to how you're doing. It's impossible. So that would be another argument for belonging. It's kind of multifaceted kind of argument for belonging and not just attending. And that would be the takeaway. Don't just come to Omaha Bible Church. By all means, do. But belong to Omaha Bible Church. I would challenge you to so belong that you could be put out. Let me go a little further. If you are not in a place where where you're just on the fringe attending and you people don't know you well enough, you're not plugged in enough to be able to be put out, you're not living a New Testament Christian life. I need to be in a place where I could be disciplined because that means I'm a part of what Christ is doing. It's important. You say, but I don't want to be disciplined. That's right. I don't either. (laughs) But I, but I don't want to be an unbiblical Christian. Uh, not attached. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. 
So what does Jesus think about the church? He thinks the church is pretty important. And that's an understatement. And he wants you to think it's more than pretty important. He loves the church. He gave himself up for the church. He wants you to love the church and be attached to it and become a part of it. And I hope this has been helpful in that regard.